are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12 today, so you can go ahead and turn there. Robin Hoynes was a beautiful and joyful young Christian girl. She was working as an assistant manager in a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Torrance. Uh, it was late October 1984. In an attempted robbery gone wrong, Robin was murdered in the back office of that Kentucky Fried Chicken. The safe was tampered with, but it wasn't opened. She was only 21 years old. Though there were several suspects, all had an alibi, and the murder went unsolved for 20 years. It wasn't until the cold case was opened in 2005 that a single piece of evidence, a small piece of foam in the evidence box, was the key to solving the case. It turned out to be a piece of foam from the back of a work boot. Now, when they had originally done the investigation, um, there were pictures from one of the suspects' home uh, in which he often wore these type of boots, and he wore them until they wore out. But that suspect, William Charles Marshall, had a rock-solid alibi by his girlfriend at the time. Years later, no longer his girlfriend, she recanted her story and revealed that she had lied for him 20 years ago. William Marshall had lived for over 20 years thinking he had gotten away with murder. He was now 46 years old, he had a family, he had a career as a fire captain, he was arrested and is serving life in prison without the possibility of parole for murder. People get uh, caught in crazy ways. I remember hearing a story about some car thieves in the Hollywood Hills. They steal a high-end car, and as they are speeding off, they start to go through the glove box. In the glove box is a stack of child pornography. Disgusted by that, they, they start throwing it out the windows on the freeway. A police officer is driving by, sees them littering, pulls them over. They get caught, the pedophiles get caught, and arrested. Gangster John Dillinger was named public enemy number one by the FBI in 1933. He was caught and he died in a shootout because his female escort for that evening tipped off the police that they were going to the movies. In the late 70s, a routine traffic stop revealed that the car was in fact stolen. And when they brought the man in, they realized that it was Ted Bundy and he was wanted for 36 murders of young women. Ted Kaczynski, known for killing three people and injuring nearly two dozen more between 1978 and 1995, he mailed bombs to the residences of businessmen, to university campuses, and even put one on an American Airlines flight. Better known as the Unabomber, he was caught because his brother recognized the language and the ideas found in Ted's manifesto. I don't know how anyone gets away with anything these days. It seems like even the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world, their secrets have been exposed. Some might escape punishment, but we know that that's only temporary. With the advance of technology, our understanding of DNA, traffic cameras, internet trails. It's foolish to think you can get away with anything immoral. The reality is that living in 2024, there are people out there that are good guys, 
that are looking for, that are, that are being creative, that are hackering, that are figuring out how to do this better and better. The problem is there are also these bad guys out there that are trying to find the same information on people to blackmail them, to expose them, to threaten them. Why am I talking about this kind of stuff? It's more importantly, more importantly, guys, we have an all-knowing God who sees every action and every thought, and you will be found out. Your sin will catch up with you, and you will li live looking over your shoulder or be pridefully fooled until the very end. This brings us to 2 Samuel Chapter 12, David finds out that there's no escaping the ramifications of his sin. In, in addition, God, uh, God's word demonstrates how often we see things from a human perspective that distorts God or his view of sin or, his, or redemption. And so when we understand that God is radically different from us in the way that he confronts sin, in the way that in uh, his concern for sin, in his dealing with the consequences of sin, in his clemency or his forgiveness of sin, sorry, I needed another C there, we will better understand both the vileness of sin and also the love of God for us in regard to our sin. And so from chapter 11, we learn that David's lacks disposition as king. He came off the battlefield. He left the fighting to others, led to lusting after a beautiful woman instead of turning away, which led to sinful thoughts, which led to the sinful action of adultery. To conceal his sin, he attempted to manipulate her husband. When that didn't work, he betrayed this man, a warrior loyal to him and loyal to his kingdom. He put him in a dangerous place and withdrew the protection in battle, murdering Uriah. Now in chapter 12, Nathan goes to confront the king, who is both powerful and anointed by God. God is calling Nathan to call David out on his sin. He begins with a story. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare the guest for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through Nathan's experience, through his knowledge, Nathan goes to David and he tells him a story about a man and his beloved sheep. He goes to the once shepherd turned king and he tells him a sheep story. As the story ends, David is furious. How dare he? That man in my kingdom, under my rule? How selfish, how cruel. Absolutely not. David's sense of justice is enraged. 
Because David does have a true concern for righteousness when he is not blinded by his own sin. And so sin blinds us. If you have rules for others that you yourself break, if you judge others but give yourself grace for the same offenses, you might be blind to sin's effect on your life. We're not only blind, but we are blind to our own blindness. We often have the least patience, the least grace for those who um, are guilty of the very same things that we do. Ugh, can you believe her? All she does is gossip and talk behind other people's backs. What a hypocrite. She acts so fake. Oh, wait, here she comes. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Or he is so prideful. Everything is me, me, me. He's not so great. I'd never do that. I'm glad I'm not like him. Can you see the irony? As parents, it can be difficult to see the sins that we struggle with pour out of our kids. They're like sinful little mirrors that run around. Of course, I never had any angry kids or selfish kids. What are the sins in others that bother you the most, that get you the angriest? Be honest. Ask yourself, what, what does that reveal about your own heart? What plank might you need to take out of your eye to remove the speck from someone else's? And so Nathan was, was a blessing to his friend. He was a blessing to the king. He spoke hard truths to David, even when that truth was difficult to hear. He was loyal in his service to David, faithful to God, faithful to God's word. These are all important traits in a friendship. It says something that David and Bathsheba would later name one of their sons, Nathan. We are all blind to the blindness of sin in our lives. We need close brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to speak truth in our lives. The question is, are we approachable? Do we have bold relationships that will risk the friendship to speak the truth, to speak that truth in love? Nathan risked his life to show David David's sin. David responded, not in anger at Nathan, but at his own sin. Do you have friends like that? Are we open to having sin exposed in our life so that we can deal with it through confession and through repentance? Or are we more concerned with what others might think? Notice that Nathan could have been direct with David. He could have pointed his finger at him saying, look, God has told me what you've done. I know. You're an adulterer. You're a murderer. Shame on you. He could have quoted Exodus 20. You shall not covet. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. Shame on you. You're a murderer. You have broken God's commandments. Repent. But he didn't. He told him a story about a man and his sheep. And so if you think the only way to address the sin in others' lives is to slam them with God's law and are disappointed when they don't respond well, you aren't paying attention to the way that God often deals with us in our sin, the way that Jesus often spoke to others about their sin and the way that we are called to speak truth and we are called to speak grace and we are to gently restore others. 
And don't hear me saying that, that there's not a time to be direct. Don't hear me saying that, that we should water down or minimize sin. And I don't mean that Jesus wasn't harsh with the Pharisees at times. But in the same way that God deals with each of us differently, we are called to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. God appeals to David's heart for justice. For many of us, it is God's kindness, not his harshness, not his bluntness that leads us to repentance. For some of you, you may need to change your approach when addressing others' sins. For others, you need to have the courage to confront others in love. You may be the perfect person to lovingly call someone out on their sin exactly because it's uncomfortable, exactly because it's scary for you. Continuing in verse 5, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The fact that these words come out of David's mouth prove that the indirect approach was good. We know that in evangelism or in giving counsel, it's good for the very words to come out of that person's mouth that they would come to that realization, that they would say those words, that they, those words that are, that are life-changing rather than just preaching at them. David's judgment is that this man deserves death and that this wrong needs to be restored fourfold. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have stuck, struck down Uriah the Hittite with a, sword, with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And so this story, David's story, it was told and it was recorded so that David and those uh, who were there who would read this account then and us reading this account now, would realize the gravity of what happened. Of course, these acts are heinous. But it's especially so because of who David was and the position that God had put him in. He was king. He was God's king. And God made it crystal clear that David's actions were unacceptable and that God would not tolerate it. But more importantly to God was his condemnation of David is that that God chose him. God put him on the throne. He protected him from Saul's mad rage. He gave David all that was Saul's before him. He gave him wealth and power and comfort. And he would have given him more if he would have just asked. And what did David do? His actions were a direct attack on God and on his promises. You see, we see it totally backwards from God. All we see is the adultery and the murder. And then we feel good about ourselves that we haven't had an affair or killed anyone. We say to ourselves, David really messed up, but at least I haven't done those things. Or we think, David was a man after God's own heart, and even he messes up. What chance do I have? 
In David's discontent, he decided to take things for himself instead of going to God. He was essentially making himself God, putting himself on the throne. But this is what we do every time we sin. Take something like we have anxiety from from worrying about the things we have no control over. Paul calls, calls God the God of all comfort. And yet, we somehow always find some escape, some distraction, something to numb the pain, rather than to go to, to trust in God himself. We might not have committed murder or adultery, but we'll avoid God by binging Netflix, by getting wasted, pursuing sexual immorality, pornography. We'll seek after success, after attention, rather than going to the source of peace and the source of comfort. And then we consider these sins minor. The Lord also has special concern for the poor. We see it throughout Scripture. As God's representative, the king of Israel, David, was supposed to protect against the abuse of power, not partake in it. Just as in the story, the rich man took the poor man's lamb, David had taken Uriah's wife, though God had given him plenty. Verse 10, now therefore the the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your lives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And as we will see, David's family will be ravaged by the sword. His family will learn more from his adultery and from his violence and from his taking what is not his than from his repentance, than from his service to God. He has set the example that will become the pattern. And so, moms and dads, I ask you, what patterns are you setting for your kids? Do they see you ask for forgiveness when you sin against each other, against your kids, against God himself? Do they see you repent? Do they see you forgive and really forgive without holding grudges, without punishing others? Do they see your need for a savior? And David's son Amnon will so powerfully desire what is not his to take that he will pursue and rape his half-sister Tamar. David's other son Absalom will avenge Tamar and he will murder Amnon. Absalom will seek what is not his to take, his father's throne. And as an assertion of authority, he will sleep with David's concubines in a tent on the roof for all of Israel to see. And though David doesn't seek revenge on him when he is defenseless and when he is vulnerable, Joab will murder him. Adonijah, David's other son, will also seek after what is not his, again, his father's throne, and be killed by his brother Solomon for his betrayal. So all will die violent deaths related to trying to exert power and control. And these are the consequences of David's sin, the fourfold death of his sons. Verse 13 says, 
uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so David has, has godly sorrow for his sin that leads him to repentance. Paul talks about this in his second letter to the church in Corinth, where he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so we can have sorrow that is, that is godly, but we can also have God, uh, sorrow that is worldly. Worldly grief, it's, it's grief, it's true grief. There's sadness, there's brokenness, there's tears. We're sorry that we're losing something or have lost something, people, our reputations, our job. There's brokenness, there's sadness. Maybe losing fulfillment of the things of this world. And so David could have been sorry that he got caught. He could have been sorry that his sin was exposed, that his reputation was tarnished, fearful of the consequences or what others might think of him. Worldly sorrow, though, it focuses on ourself. Often the very thing we were worshiping that brought us to sin in the first place. In contrast, godly sorrow is focused on God. It's sadness over the break in our relationship with God. It's being heartbroken that we have grieved, that we have offended God. Godly grief flows from a sadness that God's holy law has been broken. But as Paul says, the sorrow and tears of godly grief will lead to repentance. And of course, there's godly grief in, in the loss of loved ones or broken relationships or other consequences of sin. We can grieve the effects of the fall or of sin or of the destruction in our life, but godly sorrow produces repentance. It produces salvation, a life without regret, a heart that wants to please God rather than ourselves, and it leads to real and to lasting change. David had godly sorrow. Although all we get in this 2 Samuel 12 passage is David saying, I have sinned against the Lord, we have a wealth of insight into David's heart through the Psalms, especially Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And we're going to look at Psalm 51 right now. So hold your spot in 2 Samuel 12, flip to Psalm 51, where we get the details of David's confession. Psalm 51, in verses 1 and 2, he pleads to the Lord. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He understood that his sin was first and foremost against God. He says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In verse 10, we see that David desired to be wholly changed by God. He cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Skipping down verses 17 to 19, he desires to be in alignment with God, in alignment with God's will, and to worship God properly and truly. And so he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, will you not despise? Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in sacrifices. In the middle of his confession, uh, back up in verse 13, David sees the privilege of being a lesson to others. He made a promise saying, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And so Psalm 51 is thought to be David's immediate outpouring of repentance after his sin was exposed. While Psalm 32 is this later examination, uh, a re-examination so that others might, might benefit from his mistakes. And so how awesome it is then to see how David makes good on this promise by writing Psalm 32. We're going to look at that as well, so go ahead and jump over to Psalm 32. An aspect of, of godly sorrow and true repentance is not wanting others to go through what you have suffered. Suffered from delaying confession and repentance, not wanting others to endure the consequences of hiding their sin. And it's been a blessing to see that truth played out beautifully in this church. There are many men like David or Peter, women like Mary Magdalene or the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. They're quick to give warning or counsel and come alongside those caught in sin. David reflects on his own experience. He seeks to instruct, instruct us on the joy of repentance, the true blessing of dealing with our sin by honest confession and by receiving God's forgiveness. Psalm 32, verse one says, "'Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven.'" whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so we see here the incredible blessing that David expresses to be forgiven, to be covered, our iniquity not counted against us, to be without deceit in the eyes of God. David, being the poet that he is, he uses different words to help us to understand the completeness and the extent of our sin. He says transgression, which means crossing the line. Sin, which is the violation of a divine commandment. It's missing the mark, but it's, it's not simply that. Iniquity, this stubborn turning aside from the proper course of life. It's an entrenched desire not to do right. Deceit, it's to lie with the intention to deceive. The de uh, they demonstrate the desire to rebel, to go astray, to live perversely, to twist and suppress the truth. But in the same breath, sin is contrasted with the awesomeness of God's forgiveness. God forgives our transgressions. He covers our sins. He overlooks our iniquity and renews a right spirit within us. So we see not only the magnitude and the comprehensiveness of our sin, but also of God's forgiveness. 
David uses the word forgive, which means to lift or to carry. And so truly, sin is a burden so heavy that only God can lift it and carry it away from us. David uses the word covering to remind us of our parents, Adam and Eve. When they sin, they try to cover themselves. But it was God who covers them with the sacrifice. David reminds us of the atoning sacrifices that covered the Israelites' sins. God covers the sins of the repentant, hiding it beneath the blood of the sacrifice. David says that God doesn't take into account or attribute it to us. Unlike a banker who keeps careful accounting of the debts owed to the bank, God says God, David says God does not count iniquity. This gift of forgiveness is a promise for all of us. Remember, David's sin was exposed. Nathan knew, Joab suspected, the baby born to Bathsheba would only be born too early to be, David, to be of David's marriage and too late to be of Uriah's child. When we hide sin, the worst thing we can imagine is to be caught. And yet it is God's mercy that our sin be revealed. Psalm 32, verse 3, David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David reflects on what it was like living under an unrepentant sin. His bones were wasting away, groaning, his strength dried up. We're often silent about our sin, or we fail to recognize that our, that our suffering is a result of our own sin. What a contrast this misery is to the blessedness described in verse 2. David wants us to see the day, the day and night difference between the two, between the wretchedness of silence and the joy of a full, honest confession. Keeping silent about his sin affected his entire being. It affected not only his soul, but his mind, his emotions, his body. But God's love for David did not leave him there. God's heavy hand on David kept the seriousness and consequences of his sin ever before him. This is a gracious gift of our God. Though we might struggle or even recoil at the idea of discipline, it's truly a gift of God to lay his heavy hand upon us in order to convince us to turn from our sin. We see this concept elsewhere in Scripture. Proverbs 3 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. As sons and daughters of the king, he disciplines us because he loves us and knows that it is for our good, because sin destroys us. God disciplines us to awaken us so that we will turn from our sin to him. Psalm 119 says, I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Blessed is the man who you, whom you dis discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. God doesn't want his children to remain in sin and keep silent. Because sin destroys us, God lays his heavy hand upon us. He disciplines us. He awakens us. 
David learned this and wanted to pass this on. David eventually submitted to God, and so we see David's confession, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our complete confession is the remedy to our misery. And I say complete because when we get caught, we are so tempted to only confess the very minimum. We're always trying to cover. We're always trying to conceal. When someone says, you're busted, admit it, apologize, ask for forgiveness. We often say, well, okay, how much do you know? We'll protect and we'll defend ourselves so that we can confess and repent as little as possible. David describes the enormity of his sin. Again, he uses multiple words. He acknowledges sin. He doesn't cover his sin. He confesses his sin. David wants everything out in the open now. Though God knows everything, David lays himself bare before him. This language conveys urgency, an eagerness, a willingness, complete remorse. David acknowledges his sin. He comes before the Father to declare purposely, to declare willingly, to declare emphatically his sin before him. He knows it's only through God that we get complete forgiveness. It's in him that we receive mercy. It's in him that we are given grace. It's in him that we are forgiven We are cleansed of our unrighteousness so that we might know him, might be rightly related to him, so that we might grow and become more like him. When we come to God willingly in our sin, we know that it is healing for our soul. We are restored. David says, I didn't hide it. There's no cover-up. This is clothing language. I laid my sin bare. I laid it naked, totally exposed, totally open, Again, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves. God removes their insufficient covering to cover them with his righteousness. God's covering pointed to Christ, the only one whose righteousness can justify us. If you cover up your sin, you're rejecting God's covering. If you resist covering up your sin, God will cover you with beautiful wedding garments. Sorry, if you, yes, if you don't cover yourself, God will cover you in beautiful wedding garments. Then David says, I will confess, which means to admit, to agree with, to be of one mind with God. Confession then requires submission and trust. It requires you to say, you are God and I am not. You are the standard, not me. What you say goes and I will agree. If it is sin and you say it is sin, I will believe it is sin. It's helpful for me to realize that God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy. Sin is is harmful to us because it separates us from what is truly good, God himself. Sin is the rejection of who God is, his very nature. Because God is truth, we aren't to lie. Because God is the giver of life, we aren't to murder. Sin is rejecting God as God. It's putting ourselves in his place. It's only then through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit 
and God's assurance, his assurance of forgiveness that we're able to submit to and to trust in and to confess our treason to God. Are you in secret, repetitive, unrepentant sin? If so, acknowledge and confess and repent of it. If you were caught, how would you react? Would it be worldly sorrow? Would you be uh, grieved simply that you were caught? That others knew the truth? Consider the godly sorrow that we should have for forsaking God and forsaking his word and get help. Do you feel helpless, trapped in your sin? Are you in some small way hoping you get caught because then there's a way out? Talk to faithful brothers or sisters in Christ. We want to help. There's no joy when other Christians are caught in deception. It is not the end, and it is avoidable. The reality is that you will be exposed. You are living in misery, trying to conceal it, and it doesn't fool God. It's often out of fear of judgment that we avoid God, but in Christ we have no fear of judgment. We're free to run to him, to confess, to be forgiven. The prophet Micah was amazed at God's forgiveness. He said, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Joy comes from knowing that our heavenly Father graciously forgives us, restores our relationship with him. God delights in showing mercy. We are bad at forgiving. Even when we're humble and honest and, and confess and apologize, oftentimes people don't want to forgive. They want to hold it over you. Or maybe they respond, okay, fine, but it's not really fine. But not God. Our Heavenly Father never responds this way. The Creator God seeks us in the garden. He tabernacles with us. He provides a way to be reconciled. He intervenes and draws near. It's as if he cups his ear and leans down because he wants to hear what we have to say. And when we plead for mercy, there is great joy for him to give it to us. He rejoices in being merciful. He rejoices in forgiving us. For that reason, don't hesitate to come before God with your sin, acknowledge it, confess it, don't cover it up. Psalm 32, verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. No matter the severity of sin, David assures us that deliverance is all around us. And some of you will object to, to coming to Christ for salvation because you believe that your sin is too severe, too wretched, that Christ would never forgive you. But there is no sin so heinous that God will not forgive when we confess and turn to him. God will not turn away anyone who comes to him with a repentant heart. He is our protection. He is our hiding place. He is our safe harbor. All right. Jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's finish up our verse 
13, the end of it says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan says that the Lord has put away his sin, literally caused your sin to pass over. David's sin will be atoned by God himself. David, the Lord's anointed, he doesn't die. Unlike Saul, he remains on the throne. He's forgiven. But there are consequences. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David's sin was transferred to another person, his son. David didn't die, but he had to live with, and he had to face his consequences of his sin. He had by his actions mocked God. He was announcing that God's anointed can do what he wants, take what he wants, throwing away life to cover up his tracks. And yet, David gets mercy. He gets what he doesn't deserve. Yet he still reaps what he sows and suffers the consequences of his actions. God loves and forgives, but we still have to often deal with the repercussions of our foolishness. But God will give us the strength and he will give us the grace to walk in that. And this all seems very messy to us. We don't like this. We want neat solutions and tidy packages. When, when we do X, God does Y. But the reality is that in, the, in this situation, and in lots of situations, we have God's judgment to contend with. And God judges David. We don't always understand God's judgment, but God alone is the judge and does what is He's the judge of good and evil. He's the judge of right and wrong. And God alone judges the actions of man. And so some will feel that David wasn't punished enough. Others that God is too harsh in dealing with in killing David's innocent child. There's not always a predictable cause and effect relationship that we see unless it's exposed in Scripture. We deserve punishment and yet God is merciful to whomever he wants. And so if mercy was expected, if mercy was deserved, if mercy could be earned, it wouldn't be mercy. The fact that he doesn't punish all humans more often and more extreme and more generally, that is the great mystery of God's mercy. Chapters 11 and 12 are, are parenthetical to, to the story um, it goes from, from the role of a king, which is fighting and protecting his people, and then we have this account, and then it goes back to that in verse 26. It goes back to our regularly scheduled programming. So what do we make of this? Rick mentioned this last week. He said chapters 11 and 12 give the reader insight into why David's kingdom is going to go down the tubes here pretty quickly. But I also think it demonstrates that though we can often put too much emphasis on one individual account, God doesn't. Sin shouldn't be ignored, but it also shouldn't be seen as the measure of David's life. David was still a man after God's own heart, but he ignored God's law. So when God forgives, he really forgives. He says, it's as far as, our sin is as far as, the east is from the west. And though God 
knows all things. He says, it's as if I cannot remember it. The reality is that Lord, the Lord made a covenant with David that in the future would rise a Messiah, a king who descended from David. And Jesus is that king who is not gazing at rooftops, but leads the battle. He's pure. He is loyal to his bride. He protects those that are his. He is the king that is not spared, but dies the death we deserve, restoring us to the Father. The prophet Ezekiel later records, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. This is a a promise that the Messiah, the king from the line of David, will also be a shepherd like David. The shepherd king is Jesus. He's the good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures, He leads us beside still waters, restores our soul, leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Our shepherd king is with us in the dark valley. He feeds us and heals us, and we will dwell with him forever. Repent and turn to the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one and rejoices when the lost are found. We enter into protection by him alone. He's our protection from the thief and the wolf. He's laid his life down. Those the Father has given to him can have assurance. They can't be snatched away. He knows his sheep and they know his voice. Call out to him in repentance and trust in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And though David uh, learned the hard way, God, Let that not be our experience as well. Let us learn from your word. God, you will accomplish what you will accomplish either through us or in despite of us. God, let it be through us. Let us trust in you that you are good, that you delight in our repentance and confess and repent our sins. We thank you that you are good and that you are merciful. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.